The Bible has some pretty astonishing numbers. Are they accurate? Do you want to understand the Bible, but you're confused? You've come to the right place. This is Tough Bible Questions on Timothy Talks, where I'm going to work through answers to your questions about the tough, challenging, and sometimes flat-out weird sections of the Bible. Welcome back to Timothy Talks, and thank you so much for joining. My name is Daniel Pentman, and as usual, I'm the host for today's show. We're going through tough Bible questions. It's season four. You know this already, but today we've got a special question that's especially difficult. Are Bible numbers accurate? Now, this becomes a problem because there are lots of numbers in the Bible, and sometimes we read these numbers and we're just in astonishment. Could it really be that that many people were involved in that battle or that that many of such and such a thing happened? It's I mean, sometimes you read these numbers and they really do seem just phenomenal. Indeed, sometimes they almost make you wonder, is that exaggerated? Is that real? Well, this difficulty shows up a lot, especially in the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Genesis, you have the lives of men who lived for hundreds of years, and those numbers are recorded in the Bible. Or you have things like Noah's flood, and you hear about a rainstorm that lasts for 40 days. Now, we might be able to get around some of these difficulties if we concede that the earth before the flood was very different for today, which the Bible seems to present that as the picture. But there's so many other astonishing numbers. You don't even have to go to the book of Genesis to find these astonishing numbers. So what do we do with the rest of the numbers? Because they are big and they're tough, and it's hard to be certain what exactly it can mean when the number is that big. Well, Honestly, there's so many numbers that modern man finds astonishing, I can't list them all for you. I can't work through all of them. Just like when I was dealing with slavery, if you've listened to that podcast, there were so many biblical passages that there's just not time to go through all of the passages. So um, it's similar in this situation. I can't work through all of the tough um, numbers, all of these huge numbers that are found in the Bible. But um, what I do want to do is I want to go through a sampling of them. So, for example, I've been studying recently in the book of 1 Kings, and 1 Kings is a great example of a book that has some astonishing numbers. Let me give you just a sampling of some of these numbers. We read in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, that Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. And when you read verses like that, it makes you wonder, how can the inhabitants of one palace eat this much food? Seriously? A hundred sheep every day? And so this is a perfect example of these numbers that we find really hard to believe. Or we read in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, that Solomon's yearly income was 666 talents of gold. Now, when you learn that a talent is 66 pounds, we're talking around somewhere like 43,000 pounds of gold that comes to Solomon every year? And wow, that's pretty astonishing. And again, it makes you scratch your head. Or we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3, that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty astonishing. Can a guy really marry that many people? I mean, Solomon reigned for 40 years, so that means that he gets married or gets a new concubine every two weeks for his entire reign. 
that's sort of makes that would be hard to believe. Or what about 1 Kings chapter 20 verse 29 that says that 100,000 soldiers are slain in a day. Now that's a hard number to believe, but it's even harder to believe when you realize that that's about as many people as died in the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima in World War II. And that many people just died in just an average battle in the Old Testament? Again, difficult to wrap our minds around. Or just one verse later in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 30, we read that there's a wall that falls on 26,000 people. Okay, can you even build a wall that big? That's the question in my mind. And then just to throw in a particularly tough case from 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 9, we read about a million-man army that goes to war. Now, considering that the whole United States Army active duty is only 1.3 million soldiers, it's hard to imagine an army from Old Testament times that counts to a million men. So what do we do with these huge numbers? How do we read? Obviously, this isn't all of the difficult numbers that we're going to find in the Bible, but it's a good sampling of pretty tough numbers. What do we do with numbers like this? Well, I've got some ideas, and I'll tell you in just a moment. Just take a listen to this. Now it's your turn. This season at Timothy Talks, the goal is to answer your tough Bible questions. So, do you have a tough Bible question? If so, email it to timothytalkspodcast at gmail.com. That's timothytalkspodcast at gmail.com. Plus, every time you send a tough Bible question, you'll get a chance to win a Bible study resource of your choice so that you can understand the Bible even better. We might devote a whole podcast episode to answering your tough Bible question. Welcome back. So, dealing with tough Bible numbers, how do we deal with these numbers that seem so astonishingly large to us? Well, as you saw in these examples that I just gave to you, these numbers are huge, they're mind-boggling, and you can imagine critics love to use numbers like these to throw you off. You may not have thought about them, but there are certainly people who are puzzling about these things. And you can also see why it's important to have a good answer for them, because even if you're not thinking about them, well, probably your children are, your kids are, your grandchildren are, your siblings are, um, the people in your Bible study are coming across these numbers and they're thinking about them and they're trying to justify how we can believe in the Bible as literally true and as God's inspired word while also believing things like these things. So I'm going to delve into these examples that I gave you, and I think that you'll find that some of these answers are actually convincing. But first, let me explain to you the basic strategy of how you go about um, what you do when you find these these huge numbers. Let me explain to you the basic strategy. Unfortunately, there's no step-by-step process that you can use to figure out why the number is so big or to explain it. Instead, what it really comes down to is that every situation requires an understanding of the history and culture that's being recorded. So as you'll see, the more you understand about ancient history, the easier it's going to be to make sense of these numbers and to place them in their historical context. And you also need to brainstorm sometimes potential explanations for these numbers. Certainly, you need to look into the text and gather as many clues as you can, as many as possible, to try to understand what's going on. And then finally, you have to realize that what we have in the Old Testament 
is we have a historical document that's recounting history. So ultimately, we are limited in our ability to understand the past. So even with an, un- an excellent understanding of history, culture, different possibilities, it's still possible that we may not get quite a full grasp on why the numbers are so big. At this point, if you've done all the other things, at this point, it does come down to exercising faith, trusting God, not because we're lunatics who believe anything that's written, but because God's word has proven to be reliable again and again. Now, there's one solution that some people use. Some people like to use the answer that the numbers that have been written down in the Old Testament have actually been botched in the replication process. Maybe a scribe misread a scroll and he put the wrong number down. Now, I'm not going to discount this entirely. I think there's potentially some room where this could have happened in certain situations, but I don't like to jump to this answer. I don't think that it's an ideal solution. It doesn't seem very convincing, especially if we believe that God preserves his scripture. With that said, I'm not going to throw this out entirely, Um, because there may be intact scrolls with different numbers. And so there does seem to be the possibility that certainly we do know that scribes can make mistakes. Um, And so I'm not going to throw that out entirely, but I don't want us to use that as our, as the simple answer to get around really tough numbers when there's actually much better ways to answer these difficult numbers. So let's just delve into some of these numbers. I've already listed some out, but let me just delve into these situations that I've listed. So 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep beside deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. So what's going on here? Well, the point of this section of 1 Kings is really to show the, the magnificence and the prominence of the court of Solomon. This magnificence and prominence comes directly from God, who promised to bless Solomon with wealth. So what the text is doing is it's just trying to illustrate how abundantly that came about. And it turns out that the magnificence of ancient courts was sometimes boasted of based on how much these ancient courts would consume. So if we want to understand these numbers, if we want to even see are they believable numbers, we need to understand ancient courts and what was normal at them. So how does Solomon's court compare to other Near Eastern courts? Well, we could look, for example, at um, a record that was found of the daily consumption at the court of Cyrus. And from a list that we have from ancient times, we learn this, that they consumed a thousand bushels of wheat of different qualities, the same number of barley meal, 400 sheep, 300 lambs, 100 oxen, 30 horses, 30 deer, 400 fat geese, 100 goslings, 300 pigeons, 600 small birds of various sizes, 3,750 gallons of wine, 75 gallons of fresh milk, and the same of sour milk. So you, you listen to that, and that is obviously some phenomenal number. But that's the consumption, the daily consumption at the court of Cyrus. Well, obviously, Solomon's court is smaller, and he's not using um, nearly this degree of supplies. Maybe a fourth, maybe a fifth of these supplies, maybe even smaller than that. Um, Which we would expect that, because Solomon's reigning over a smaller empire. 
So just by looking at that, we can see that even though the numbers that are recorded in 1 Kings are pretty phenomenal, they're actually not outside of the range of what you would find from ancient courts of this time period. Now, another question we might ask is, do we think that Solomon was going through this every single day? It, this is the daily consumption of the court, but maybe, maybe not, because ancient courts didn't function quite the same as, say, medieval courts did. Not everyone was there all the time. There's, it's possible for this court to sort of go into a peak time when all the diplomats are there, everyone's involved, and then times when not everyone is there. So this could be sort of the, the maximum that the court's going through each day. So should we assume then that that verse, that those two verses in 1 Kings chapter 4 are inaccurate or they're the result of a scribal error or something like that? Or maybe that some biblical author was just completely fibbing and telling us a bigger number than was true? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that we have to throw off this number as inaccurate because it does fit with the historical data. It may seem large, but that doesn't make it in itself inaccurate. Let's move to another one. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 14 through 15 says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land. Well, again, a talent weighs somewhere around 30 kilograms or 66 pounds. So this is like 43,000 pounds of gold every year, which is like, 20 tons of gold. How does a guy get 20 tons of gold? Again, this seems to be an unbelievable amount, especially if this comes in every year for the 40 years that Solomon reigns, which, by the way, the text does not claim that. This might be recording just his most prosperous year ever. But still, what do we do with such a large number? Well, I have two thoughts on this number. First of all, the Bible often speaks of very large quantities of gold, and ancient writings sometimes speak of very large quantities of gold as well. Now, I'm no expert on the topic of gold, but historical records sometimes make us wonder where did it all go. So, for example, when King Tut's tomb was opened, um, there was this astonishing amount of gold that was found there in his tomb. And archaeologists really wondered if King Tut was buried with so much gold how much gold went into the tombs of other kings? Because the thing about King Tut was, King Tut was actually not a really famous king. He was actually one of the most insignificant pharaohs of Egypt. But when his tomb was opened, there was so much gold, just an astonishment of wealth in there. And so archaeologists wondered, if he's just an insignificant king, what about the really astonishing kings? What about the really famous kings, the Ramses? the Cheops, the guys like that. What about them? How much gold were they buried with? And it seems almost as if it's disappeared from history, all of this gold. Now, another more recent example would be when we read about the conquistadors who besieged Tenochtitlan, which was the capital of the Aztec Empire in the 1500s. And the historical records indicate that there was a vast amount of gold in this city also. And it seems that that gold that was contained in the city Um, Much of it was still in the city during the siege by the Spanish. But when the city was besieged and conquered, much of that gold was lost and never recovered to history, even after the Spaniards conquered the city and looked for it. It just simply disappeared to history. So again, we're left with this question, what happened to it? And we don't really know, but, but knowing that there is these phenomenal quantities of gold in ancient times gives us a clue that when we read about huge numbers like this, 
We shouldn't just dismiss them. The second question that we can ask and really wonder about when we come to a verse like this is, how much of this gold is purified and is that being recorded here? So if Solomon is receiving 666 talents of gold each year, if that's the weight that's coming to him, are his merchants and are his um, different people who are facilitating the movement of this quantity of precious metal, how pure are they making it? Are we talking about 99.9% gold here? Or could this potentially be much less pure gold? Um, The text indicates that some of this gold is being shipped from distant lands by a navy, um, which the text talks about. Um, But perhaps these distant locations aren't doing a lot of refining. Maybe their goal is just to, to dig up the ore and to send it to the kingdom to have it processed in the kingdom. Again, somewhat, this is guesswork, we don't know, but in light of these considerations, and when there is such a large number, we don't have to dismiss this as an impossibility. And we certainly don't need to dismiss the number as an impossibility. We can look at this as um, certainly a large amount of money, certainly a large amount of gold that's coming in, but not an impossibility. Let's move on to another one, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 30. We read that Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So what do we do with this? How can a guy marry that many people in his lifetime? Well, again, going back to ancient history and the Near East, we learn about the king's harem, and the king's harem was often populated by phenomenal numbers of people. This is an eastern Um, sort of setup of a kingdom, um, not really seen so much in the West, but certainly in the East, and not limited just to the ancient Near East, but even in more recent times, and even as far away as places like China, and places like Turkey, and such places as that, um, we can learn about the ancient practice of the harem as part of the king's private um, marriage, but not just one marriage, but to many people. For example, we read in the 1800s, that the Turkish sultan had 1,300 women that he um, was married to or that were his concubines. Um, The emperor of China was said at one time to have had 3,000 women in his harem. Um, The travelers of the 17th century reported the number of the wives of the great mogul to have been 1,000, according to one source. Malcolm's History of Persia states that King Croesus had 5,000 horses, 1,200 elephants, and 12,000 wives. Now, while that may be a greatly exaggerated number, it shows that these people, even if 12,000 is way out there, and it certainly may be, it still shows that ancient rulers had phenomenal numbers of people that they were married to, or at least that they held as concubines. When we read those numbers, we learn that Solomon Um, is not at all strange in this respect. Also, you remember that Solomon is marrying many of these ladies to cement alliances with local rulers. Um, That was one of the ways in which rulers would keep a firm grasp on power. Um, Rather than having the king next door to you being your enemy, you would marry his daughter, and then that would ensure that you have a peace treaty that will last, because obviously there's no reason to go to war when your family members like that, or hopefully there's not. So oriental courts did have large harems, and that was a mark of the wealth and power of the ruler. Solomon's no different from this, and this number is actually not unbelievable at all. It's very much in line with the customs of those times and those places. Let's move on to a more difficult one, 1 Kings 
chapter 20 and verse 29, we read, And they encamped opposite one another seven days. This is speaking about Israel and the Syrians. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. So what's going on here? Well, to look at this, we need to understand that the word used to denote the slaughter or striking down of the 100,000 Syrians, if we just do a little bit of basic work on the text, looking at the Hebrew text here, we're going to find that the number is, or the, the word for striking is the same word that's used in verse 35. In verse 35, there's a prophet, and he says to someone, smite me, strike me, hit me. And eventually he is hit, and then he uses this in this um, prophetic speech that he's giving to the king. Now, the point here is the, the prophet is not actually killed. He's not saying, strike me for the purpose of killing me. He's simply saying, strike me for the sake of injuring me. So when we first read that, it sounds like Israel is killing 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. But it's actually not what's going on here. The word is indicating that there's simply 100,000 casualties. That could involve all who are killed, certainly, but also all those who are wounded at all. Anything from a major wound, like the loss of a limb, to potentially even just a minor wound, just getting um, roughed up, basically. And in light of the fact that this word can have all of this range of meaning, we might even be able to include it um, for those who are taken captive, and maybe even for those who are missing in action. I mean, it's, it's difficult to tell exactly, but this means then that we're not talking about 100,000 men dying on one day, but we're talking about 100,000 casualties. The Israelites create 100,000 Syrian casualties in one day. Certainly, that's a much more understandable number. Now, the very following verse, 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 30, only makes the problem more difficult, though. It says, And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. So this makes us wonder, how in the world can you have a wall fall on 27,000 men who were left? Well, this probably refers to the defensive wall that would have been built around the city of Aphek. So it's important also to notice here a few things. One is that the wall, it doesn't say that the wall killed 27,000 people, only that it fell on them. So we can understand that this is the major city wall, it surrounds the city, and if, this, if the wall falls... You can basically understand in the biblical author's mind that could involve everyone who's in the city, the wall falls on them. That doesn't mean that you actually have to yourself be hit with a huge chunk of earth-baked brick for the wall to be said to fall on you. No, if you're in the city, that can count as the wall falling on you. So we can understand about 27,000 people in this city and a wall falling on them. Still, did ancient cities have 20,000 people in them? Well... For this, I did a little bit of footwork. Um, if we look at the size of the largest cities in the ancient world, this size is not impossible. So the city of Mari in Syria was estimated to hold 60,000 people as early as 1800 BC, the time of the patriarchs. The city of Thebes held um, 120,000 people 
by 1000 BC. Now, obviously, these are the largest cities in the world. Aphek is simply a small town. But assuming that this is an army that's in dire straits, that's fleeing from the Israelites, we can imagine perhaps a town of three, four, or 5,000 people, perhaps, with a solid wall built around it. It seems like a good place for this army to flee. And so thousands and thousands of extra soldiers are crowding into this city. And then by a miracle or by an earthquake, this wall falls on the city. Um, this 27,000 might also include inhabitants of the city itself. But you can imagine just a small town, just several thousand people potentially, and then thousands and thousands of extra soldiers who are crowding in here because it seems like a safe place to be. And perhaps by a miracle, perhaps by an earthquake, maybe just the structural stress that's going on this city of having so many extra people, the wall itself falls And the Bible can speak of 27,000 people, which seems like an impossible number. But once we do a little searching, we find it's not completely impossible. Well, let's delve into one last one. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 9, because this is an especially tough one. Zira the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Moresha. So this number seems really unbelievable. How do you have a guy with an army of this size? Well, keep in mind, we're not talking about a professional army. This army would be all the fit males in the kingdom who are called on to fight. So this is why the tiny little tribe of Judah can muster 300,000 people. Even though that's a huge army, even by modern standards, 300,000 people, the tiny tribe of Judah, way off thousands of years ago, can still muster 300,000 men because it's not a professional standing army. It's simply every man in the kingdom can be called up to this service. So here we're talking about, though, about this man Zira the Ethiopian with a million men. Now, where is Ethiopia? Well, that's a difficult question. It's not, we're not going to get into it right now. It's possible that this could be referring to Egypt, which certainly had a large population. Um, they even had a standing army, but they could have supplemented it with um, uh, levies of men who were not part of the standing army. But you add to that the possibility that there could be allies, there could be other kingdoms that are joining in um, to this, and you can certainly understand how a million men could be collected to go out to war. Also, when you keep in mind that this army may include tribes or wandering bands, maybe allies of this tribe, and it's not inconceivable that this count could include not just the warriors themselves, but even potentially their families, their servants, their children. Um, If this is an ancient Near Eastern army, it would potentially have had some of that following along with it. Um, especially if there's tribes involved in this, that these are not just the warriors themselves, but also others who are coming along with them. Um, The point of this is to say a million men is a huge number, but when you understand it within the context of the ancient Near East, you understand it within the context not of a professional army, but of how warfare was conducted at that time. It's still a huge number, but it's not an impossible number. I think that these numbers are meant to make us marvel, they're meant to make us wonder, and they're recorded because they are so astonishing. The biblical writers themselves were amazed by these numbers, and that's why they wrote them down. They show the magnificence of Solomon's court, or they show how mighty are the forces standing against God's people. But the point here is, and this is really the emphasis that I wanted you to take away, you don't have to throw away reason to believe these numbers. If you study them, if you analyze them, look for clues in the text consider possibilities, you'll often realize that while these numbers are large, they are not impossible. 
And that's why, once again, we can have full trust in God and in God's word as we read it. Well, thank you so much for joining Timothy Talks as I'm answering these tough Bible questions. I want to invite you to join me next week when I intend to answer the question, what happened to Jephthah's daughter? One of those really strange passages in the Bible. If you've not already, let me invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, it would mean so much if you shared it with your family and friends. So thank you so much for listening, and God bless.